Today, I'm beginning a three-part episode with an officer who spent 14 years with the Seattle Police Department. We talk about what it was like being on the front lines of the protests and riots that erupted over the summer and the insurrection surrounding the Seattle Police Department's East Precinct, the closure of which made national news. He also talks about recently leaving the Seattle Police Department for a smaller agency and his reasons for doing so. I begin this three-part series first by looking back at some of the great work this officer did with the Seattle Police Department. We start with his response to a high-profile, multiple-victim shooting that took place in North Seattle in March 2019. That shooting killed two people and seriously wounded two others, including Metro bus driver Eric Stark, whose story of heroism I featured in Episode 8. Eric credits two Seattle police officers with saving his life. This is one of those officers. We then talk about his work on the Seattle Police Department's crisis intervention team, the team that pairs officers with mental health professionals, also known as MHPs. Together they respond to incidents of persons in mental crisis. This is the co-responder model that I've discussed previously in this podcast. This officer shares the efforts the Seattle Police Department's crisis intervention team goes to to get persons in crisis the help and support they need. Officer, welcome. Thank you. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today was I recently interviewed bus driver Eric Stark, who had a very dramatic incident where he was shot while driving the bus and is widely regarded as having saved the passengers on his bus. You were one of two officers who responded to him. I was, yeah. It's rare that I get to talk to a victim, survivor, and the officer who responded. So what was going on, let's say, a few minutes before you got to Eric? And I'll start with, the, with my initial response to the call. We get a lot of shots calls. Almost, almost none of them, or a very, very small fraction of them, are actually somebody shooting a gun or doing something as serious as what this turned out to be. So once we've realized it's a real call, it's a real shooting in progress, a potential mass casualty event, that's the kind of thing that happens very rarely in a police officer's career, thankfully. But it's one of those events with such significant potential outcomes that it's, one, it's something that we train for all the time. But once we knew we were going to this very serious in-progress shooting call, you become really laser-focused and where I passed the bus was several blocks away from where the call was dispatched to. Really just seconds later, I heard that a bus driver had pulled over, was injured. And so I answered up, I made a U-turn, and I went back to where the bus was stopped. I guess ordinarily, we would wait for a backing unit, we would go in together because we don't know if the, the, there's another shooter. We don't know if there's other things happening. If there's some violent action taking place on that bus right now, it's best to have two people. But given all of the circumstances I was hearing, and it sounded like the person in the bus probably needed some fairly substantial care, I made a decision to enter the bus because I saw a bunch of bystanders on the sidewalk who were looking up at the bus and one lady who was who was pointing toward the bus, but nobody was running for cover or ducking, hiding. And so I took that as a cue to mean that 
something was needed on the bus, but it did not, it wasn't scaring all these people. It was just a calculated risk that said, I'm probably okay to jump on the bus. I got onto the bus, driver's seat was, was vacant. I immediately could see some bullet holes in the window to my right. And then I saw Eric, who's the bus driver, Eric Stark. My partner then arrived and joined me on the bus. And I remember talking to Eric and thinking, wow, he's really calm. And yes, I see blood on his shirt and on his sleeve. And he's really too calm. And that was, that was disconcerting to me because I didn't know if he was becoming shocky. I didn't know if he was internally losing blood. But a lot of uh, shootings that I've been to, people, you know, that they don't have an exit wound, they bleed out internally, and it happens really quickly. And a lot of times they're just, my experience has been, they're very calm. Eric was very calm, so I was not. <laughs> so the next officer that came on did in fact do a sweep of the bus. It allowed us to ensure that the scene was safe. I went to work uh, with a pair of medical shears because I, I didn't know exactly where the wounds were. I could tell he was shot in the arm. He was also bleeding from the chest. But I didn't know if there was an exit wound. I didn't know if he had any kind of anything else that I couldn't see at the moment. And so the first thing I did was just started cutting off his clothing to get to his bare skin so that I could assess what was going on. And I, I could see that he had a kind of a through and through wound on his arm and then another entry into his chest cavity. But I do know that bullets do crazy things inside the human body. We just basically looked him over for exit wounds. Mostly we kind of made sure that he was sort of staying with us uh, as much as we could. When we did our pre-interview, you did do a little shout out to paramedics and medical for treating him. Yeah, you know, the bottom line is there were a lot of people that had their role to play in keeping Eric alive. The first of them was Eric and his determination. My partner and I did what we could do and got the ball rolling as far as his medical care was concerned. The next player in the uh, in the role was the paramedics. My partner and I transitioned to a more of a investigatory, looking for forensic items, evidence, pieces, which we found, and then corralling witnesses who saw anything. Were they freaked out or were they pretty calm? Uh, the people I talked to were pretty freaked out. Initially, they had no idea what was going on. They didn't, you know, why is the bus going backwards? You know, what's, you know, whatever. I don't recall that the people that I spoke with were aware that anybody had been shot until he got off, until they, they stopped the bus and he's like, uh, you guys all have to get off. I got shot, <laughs> you know. It, were you amazed at his ability to manage the situation under fire, under duress and being wounded? Yeah, absolutely. Eric's a, I mean, he's a rock star of this, of this incident. You know, if he had not been able to extricate his bus and all of the passengers from there, uh, or if he had been incapacitated by the shooter, this would have been a much more significant mass casualty event. I'm, I'm, I'm certain of it. And so his ability to move or the, maneuver this giant bus to find an alternative route and get it to a point of safety for all of his passengers and himself, ultimately. That's just kind of heroic stuff. And I'm sure he would say, oh, I'm not a hero. I just did what came naturally. But, you know, that's, that's, yeah, I think he saved a lot of people. Because the shooter was not far away from him, a few yards. Yeah, right, right in front of the bus. Understanding what he did to the person that came next, I guess a car came around Eric's bus and he shot that man through the windshield and then dragged him out of the car and shot him point blank. Uh, yes, horrific. Given that, I, I have no doubt that we would have had many, many more casualties were it not for what he was able to do. 
And then the other part of this is, as I discussed with Eric, it isn't often that you have someone whose crisis you have responded to, whose life you have saved, who necessarily comes back and thanks you. That doesn't tend to happen. That is correct. There's not a lot of gratitude that gets displayed, and, and, and that's okay. It just is, it is what it is. So how grateful Eric has been and how willing he has been to show that gratitude has been remarkable for me, remarkable for many other officers I know. Maybe it happens once in a career, but it's, it's definitely gratifying. And when you say remarkable for many other officers you know, I should add for my listeners that what you mean by that is that Eric didn't just come shake your hands. He has gone so far as to make a law enforcement appreciation challenge coin that he hands out at precincts and not just within the Seattle Police Department, but all over this region and beyond to show his gratitude to all law enforcement for their commitment and sacrifice. Let's go back a little bit and talk about what made you decide to become a police officer. I got a degree in criminal justice. I did a brief stint in federal law enforcement, decided that wasn't for me. And then I I went into some corporate environments where I was responsible for doing investigations for those corporations. And I traveled a great deal. And I guess what, what got me interested was looking to, to do two things. One, to stay a little bit closer to home because I had a young daughter. And the second thing is, it, it almost sounds cliche, to me that was, not very, that was not very fulfilling. It felt like working in a police department as a police officer would probably be pretty satisfying. And the only thing that really interested me was working for the city of Seattle. It, it had both the progressive approach to policing that I thought would be, it would mesh well with my my personality. It had a lot to offer as far as specialties and more importantly, as far as being a busy city. And, you know, I love Seattle and I wanted to be a part of that. Well, and as you said in the pre-interview too, that you took a giant pay cut to go into civil service. So it obviously meant a lot to you. Yeah, I I took a a substantial pay cut, uh, about 50%, which was a lot, but it, I mean, ultimately it was worth it for me. I happen to be very fortunate that my wife is very supportive of crazy ideas. She also got it. She understood that there was some altruistic reasons for going into it. And I think that's really what was driving me, was wanting to you know, make a difference. I want to talk about making a difference. So you did six years in patrol with North Precinct, and then CIT, which can stand for Crisis Intervention Training, but also Crisis Intervention Team. That's correct, yeah. Tell me how it worked as an officer on the Crisis Intervention Team. Like you said correctly, CIT is Crisis Intervention Training that specifically teach about symptoms of mental health problems and strategies for communicating with persons in mental health crisis, and then also educating officers about the resources that exist outside of law enforcement that might be able to bring to bear to resolve a circumstance. One of those resources was kind of a quasi-internal resource, and that was the crisis intervention team. And there was also a, a civilian mental health professional that also worked in that unit. And our principal job was to work in conjunction with that mental health provider to receive complaints about people in the community that were suffering from kind of symptomatic mental health disorders 
where those disorders were bringing them in contact with the police. Not necessarily because they were engaging in criminal behavior, although they were often that was often one of the triggers. Because of this partnership we had with the mental health provider, we would often get calls from service providers who would not otherwise be comfortable talking to the police about their clients. And so it was super helpful to have the MHP with us and as part of our team because then it could be an MHP talking to an MHP about a client who is doing dangerous things or mentally decompensating in a way that is dangerous to the community. And when they would identify people like that, my MHP partner and I would meet with the service providers, talk to them about what's going on with their client, and come up with a plan that as far as, you know, how is it going to be helpful for the police to be part of this conversation proactively so that their behavior doesn't escalate to a point of greater criminality or greater risk to the community. That was one of the sides of what we did in the crisis intervention team, and that was sort of the proactive side of things. So the reactive side of things was uh, investigations of cases that involve persons with mental health disorders, where those mental health disorders were sort of the precipitation of their activity or their crimes. And specifically, we would oftentimes get people that were charged with sometimes very serious crimes, felony assaults, the like, where they were acting out delusionally or things along those lines. And our our goal with investigating these type of offender was to bring any resources that we knew of to the conversation with the prosecutors about how to best address this offender. It's a, a long way of saying we would look for solutions that didn't necessarily only result in a person being locked up, but rather, and more importantly, a person getting into some kind of treatment, getting into some kind of program. We, in Seattle, we have a great mental health court. So that for misdemeanor crimes, that was one of the things that we often would leverage but it's, it's, it's all voluntary. We would work very closely with the staff at the mental health court to try and get clients who needed to be in that program the assistance that they would need to actually make it into that program. Because when people with mental health disorders got felony convictions, or it would often be kind of a cascading event, we recognize that, you know, they would lose their housing, they would lose contact with their case manager, it, they would go to jail, they would get punished for their offenses, but they would come out in much worse shape than they went in, and the community just wasn't being served by simply addressing things from a black and white, oh, you committed a crime, you go to jail. There were nuances to these crimes that we tended to look for and to address. For how long has crisis intervention training and the crisis intervention team existed? at least within Seattle Police Department? Yeah, so crisis intervention training, or crisis training, at least since I've been a police officer, has been part of the initial police academy training. In SPD, it has certainly existed since 2011, maybe 2010, and it's since been, been expanded. Crisis intervention team, has grown exponentially. There's a lot more officers or a lot more resources that have gone to it. Do you have a, an example or a scenario that would explain how this works? We get a lot of nuisance calls. Actually, it was an assault call. A lady who was camping in her vehicle on top of a business's parking garage. 
she was parked in such a way that, that um, it created a conflict with another person who was patronizing the business and parking in the lot. They got into a verbal altercation, and she wound up slugging the the guy. You know, it didn't. He, he wasn't injured, nothing like that. But it, it got the cops to come out. I was one of the officers that responded. And this was not while I was in the CIT team, but it was a great example of how they presently work. I responded. My partner also responded. We had, had the two parties separated. We talked to each of them. It became very clear that the genesis of this whole problem was the lady's mental health status and that she was just not doing well. She was an elderly woman. And she was uh, somewhat manic. The gentleman that got hit was was pretty adamant that he, you know, he wanted something done. I don't know that he was very certain that he wanted her to go to jail, but you know, by golly, you, you can't slug somebody in the city and so forth and so on. So, so we called for a crisis intervention team that would have a mental health professional with them, and we called for them because, again, the the cause of the problem was that it was a person who was experiencing a mental health crisis who needed some resources, who needed some guidance, and her needs were not being met. As a result, she was causing instances in the community that were disruptive, and ultimately, in a technical perspective, they were illegal, right? You can't punch somebody. So I called for the CIT team because they have a mental health professional that can come there. You know, we're dealing with a a police incident that has a better resolution than taking her to jail. You know, taking her to jail would have meant she loses her car because it goes to the impound, all of her belongings inside of it, potentially her medications that are inside of it. She would have gone to jail for, I don't know, maybe a day and then been released. And so you say, well, gee, that doesn't seem like it's that bad. But then you take into account that her entire world and her home just got impounded and she's not going to be able to get those back because she has no means. And so, you know, to reduce the possibility of that happening to crisis intervention team, their officer and their MHP spoke with this woman at length, figured out where she was receiving mental health care. The mental health professional reached out to the case manager, let her know that we were contacting this woman in the community, what was going on with her, what her presentation was like. And then she, was, she the mental health professional, was able to, to come up with a plan to keep this woman safe for the rest of the day, to keep her from, from causing any more disturbances in the community, so to keep the community safe from her as well as to get her help in the going forward because she's now triggered the woman's case. She, the mental health professional, is potentially going to do follow-up work with this lady uh, in the future. That's something that we did regularly after a, a contact. You know, we'd go back out there a week later and we would check in on the, the person and, you know, find out how they were doing. Are they escalating? Are they de-escalating their behaviors? Are they getting the help that they need? So it becomes, you know, this this simple thing, this uh, disturbance and assault, at least our hope is that it gets treated in a way that is going to ultimately have a positive outcome. The second thing we did is we wrote a report and we requested charges against her for assault, but specifically we requested that those charges be routed through the Seattle Municipal Mental Health Court. And that's really a win-win for both parties here. You've got the opportunity for her to be held to account for her behavior and potentially receive additional resources through the the social services portion of the mental health court. And you've also got a victim that's being taken care of because now he feels like like we didn't just blow off his little de minimis assault. I can't tell you how many times I've been to an assault call, I've been to a serious crime, and 
whether or not there's mental health issues involved, people in this city are amazingly concerned about their neighbors, even when their neighbors are assaulting them. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard victims say, when I ask them, well, what do you want me to do as a police officer? Do you want me to take them to jail today or something else? And they will tell me, probably half the time I ask that question, I just want them to get help. It seems to me there's been a lot of calls for this co-responder model, officers with mental health professionals. And the way that I'm interpreting this as a civilian is that, that that model doesn't exist, but it seems to me that's what you're describing. I'm, I'm really confused. Yeah, I'm confused too, but it's okay. We've been doing this for many, many years. You know, Seattle has been a model for this. My former MHP partner was great about telling people, educating people about what services existed and what we as a Seattle Police Department could do. Our CIT program was studied by the Seattle University and Jackie Helfgott. She's a professor there. Those findings were published. We've presented all over the country. SPD has, and we've had other agencies from all over the world come and examine what we've been doing. And it's really been a model for for policing. So it's been at least 10 years that it's been going on, and it's been pretty darn successful in a lot of regards. The public seems to think that every call that involves someone in mental crisis, that cops come and use deadly force without even trying to de-escalate. I don't want to talk about any cases in particular, but why is that the perception? I guess because sometimes that is what happens, or at least that it has the appearance of that's what's happened. Exactly. That's the problem, is that it, sometimes it does happen, and it's tragic when it does. And I don't want to minimize that at all. But it's also something that our city and our state has recognized from a law enforcement perspective, recognized as a problem. Because the cops are the ones that come out to scary behavior, regardless of what's generating that behavior. Oftentimes, it is a person in mental health or substance use crisis and we don't know that, but we have to address the behavior. And that's the thing. We address the behaviors. But what I'll tell you is we get thousands, just in Seattle alone, we get thousands and thousands of mental health-related calls every year. Again, I don't want to minimize the tragedy that comes when a person with mental health disorder is killed by the police. I think it's important to understand that it is a, an, an incredibly minuscule amount of times that deadly force is used. Frankly, any force is used. And the force that does get used is, is used because they're being faced with a deadly force encounter or a, danger, a physically dangerous encounter. It's not because somebody is just doing unwell, off their meds, running around. I guess the narrative that has been portrayed is that cops are just out there to really victimize mentally ill folks. And it's simply false. It is simply a patently false narrative because we are the ones that get called to these incidents and we're the ones that are expected to address them in an appropriate way appropriate way for me or a crisis intervention team 
officer would be to stabilize the situation and then look for other higher tiers of care that are not police-related to get them into to keep this from happening in the future. But I can't do that if somebody's chasing me with a knife. I can't do that if somebody is threatening with a gun. Because the first thing we as police officers have to do is to make it safe so that we can address a circumstance. We can't do that if, if the person is actively threatening. In my work, I've had terrible things happen to people I was working very closely with. I worked on a, a case that ultimately became fairly well-known. There was a law that was enacted on behalf of the deceased. It's called Joel's Law. It was really kind of a very sad thing. I'll, I'll give you the whole story. That's coming up in my next episode. The story of Joel Reuter and the officers and mental health professionals who tried for years to help him. The part of the story you haven't heard.